I'm Dr. Phil Carruthers, and this is All the Phils, where I share with you my personal life experiences, including some professional ones. If you're looking for encouragement, hope, and some fun stories, you come to the right place. On today's episode, we talk about grief and my own personal experience with it. Let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone. All right, episode two. We are talking about grief today. If you haven't listened to the first episode uh, titled One Bite at a Time, I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, After this one, there's no really set order of how we do these things. I'm just glad you're here today. So let's get going, okay? So today we talk about grief, okay? Just to get an idea of what grief is, probably in the easiest way to explain it. I mean, it's never easy when you're talking about grief. But grief in and of itself is the experience of coping with loss. So it's not just loss in itself. It's the experience of coping with loss. All right. So we're all going to lose something. It's how we handle that loss that's important. It's, it's how we move forward after the loss has occurred. Like, what is your experience? Um, we have lost a lot of things in this life. We lose a job. We lose a spouse in divorce. We lose a child, uh, especially that mother who's been expecting that baby for so long and then it's born, you know, stillborn. That is a loss. We all lose something. It's not to say that the loss is all the same. We experience loss in different ways. And that experience of that loss, those, those tragedies that happen, that's our grief. That's the grief that I'm talking about. So many of our listeners right now, many of you may be going through grief right now. Maybe it's grief that is brand new. Maybe you experienced this loss that I'm talking about very recently. There may have been a loss that you experienced five, ten years ago. I remember handling grief for the very first time, a true grief for me in my life. And that's what I want to talk about today is the loss of my sister, Lindsay Kay. She was my one and only sibling. We were 14 months uh, age difference, so we were very close in age. I was the big brother, and that loss affected me exponentially. It did, and I want to share about that. Her name was Lindsay, with an A, A-Y, <laughs> Lindsay Kay, and she was perhaps the shyest person that I have ever met in my life, was my own sister. Uh, when I say shy, you know, she never could look at you in the eye when she was talking to you. If she even chose to talk to you, she was that shy. And if she did talk to you, that hand's going to go over her mouth. She's going to cover her mouth because she's so scared to, you know, expose even her face when she was talking to somebody. I know a lot of my close colleagues, my, a lot of my friends, they kind of experienced that to a degree, but this was an, this was a huge degree of that. She was so nervous, so scared to talk to people that she didn't start ordering her food, uh, even at McDonald's, until she was 16. She was that scared. She was shy, but let me tell you what, she was so sweet and nice whenever she did open up, when she did talk to you. She wouldn't ignore you at all, not at all. She would acknowledge your presence in the room. She was just nervous. She was scared, but she was a sweet girl. She was a great sister. Her and I, we had arguments, we had fights, we were siblings. That's what we do. And my biggest regret is not getting to get to know her better even throughout those high school years. 
high school, I became very busy, you know, involved with a band. I was on the drum line. I was involved with track and field. I did that for, you know, a couple of months. And I was very busy in my social life. And so that didn't really leave a whole lot of time for my sister and I outside of just, you know, living together in the same household to really get to know each other, to really sit down and talk and have those deep conversations. And I miss that. I miss that part. I feel like that was a missed opportunity on my part. I don't know if any of y'all feel like those missed opportunities, you know, like, wow, I wish I would have talked to that person more a little bit longer. I didn't know the outcome would happen. You know, having those regrets, those, that's what I had. I had regrets of not getting to really talk and sit and experience more life with my one and only sister. Even as a big brother, you know, I wanted to protect my sister. That's what I wanted to do. Eventually, she would go on to date several guys that were not really the best characters of judgment. They would be involved in things like drugs and getting in trouble and all those things that you want to protect your child from being exposed to. Lindsay was exposed to it. And after some time with one particular boyfriend... She started showing up at home with bruises. And these weren't bruises due to accidents. These were intentional bruises. You would see them on her eyes. You would see bruises around her cheek, some abrasions, you know, little scrapes, uh, superficial cuts on her skin in various places, on her wrists, on her hands. You would also see some handprint impressions around her neck. Again, we were kind of in that period of time where I was, you know, I was doing my thing in high school and she was doing hers. But every time I would see her, I feel like the patterns of the bruises would change. They would be in the same general areas, you know, around the face, around the neck, around her wrists. I just noticed that this was becoming a recurrent thing. And and she absolutely hated having to be seen with this. She would use so much makeup to you know, cover as many bruises as she could, but there was not enough makeup to hide all the bruises that were going on. And makeup cannot hide tears. I'll tell you that. Um, I remember she would cry. I remember she would be scared. I remember she would want to get out of that situation, but she couldn't. And at the time, my family and I, we could not figure out why she wanted to stay in that. And obviously I was very naive at the idea of any kind of domestic violence that was going on, uh, especially in this dating relationship. I didn't know then what I know now. I regret not reacting the way I did. I, I regret not providing more support for her and understanding where she's coming from, what she is experiencing right now. I regret not being able to do that for her, to be that for her. So she continues in this relationship and She's still getting abused. She is open about it. She's telling us about it. She's not hiding it, but she's also not convinced that she needs to leave. She is convinced that, well, we love each other and there's nobody else for me. We love each other. And every time she would say that, new bruises would form every time, every week. And so we found out, my family and I, we found out she ended up getting pregnant. At 17, she got pregnant with now our nephews. They're both 16, uh, both autistic, great boys, very smart, very kind. They love their technology. They are enthralled with it. 
and they're doing great. I'm jumping ahead, but um, had to do a little little filler for, for my nephews. So I love you boys if you're listening to this. But um, she did get pregnant. And so after that time, uh, she got pregnant with the same guy that, you know, who was abusing her and they ended up getting married. And during that wedding, it was a total of like eight or nine people. My dad officiated the wedding. You know, he's an ordained minister. And I got to do part of the ceremony, you know, saying, hey, who gives this bride away? And that was my little job. And the entire time during that wedding, she did not smile once. There was no smile. All I could see on her face was just fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear that she is now stuck to be with this guy that she claims that she loves. And we believed her. If she said she loved him, okay. And not getting to enjoy your wedding because of circumstances that are currently happening to you. You know, for her, she's pregnant. She's also 18. She has nowhere else to go. And it's, it's a helpless feeling. It is very helpless because you want to do everything you can to help her. So after the wedding, uh, she and her husband moved into an apartment. And uh, several months later, they gave birth. Uh, she gave birth to the boys, to our twin boys. After about three or four days, after the delivery, my parents ended up taking the boys because my sister and her husband at the time just, they, they were not financially capable, emotionally capable of handling such a big task, such as raising newborn babies. They had a lot of their own stuff going on. Abuse was still going on. And my parents were not going to allow that to happen, said, no, we're going to take these boys in we're not going to let them be exposed to this kind of violence should it happen, which it's a pattern. It will happen again. So my parents ended up taking them. They ended up taking, and they've been, uh, the boys have been with my parents ever since. It was almost like my parents' second chance at parenthood, and they've done a great job. So, Dad, if you're listening, good job with the boys. You've done good. Mom, if you happen to be listening, my mom's not really big into tech or podcasts, but if you're listening... You're doing a great job, too, and we appreciate you. Little side note, tell your parents that you appreciate them, or tell your, not even just your parents, maybe your guardian, your legal guardian, tell your spouse, tell your siblings that you appreciate them. Just tell them. They may look at you funny for you randomly bringing up and saying, hey, I just want you to know that I appreciate you. That could be a life-changing moment for someone. It really could. So let people know that you appreciate them, that you value them. You value what they have done for you in your life and what they continue to do in your life and who they continue to be in your life. But I digress. Okay, so it's good to know. Good little filler. So moving on, once my parents took custody of the boys, it was, again, it was maybe four or five days after my sister gave birth to them, My sister and her husband at the time, they did not put up a fight at all. They realized that they were way in over their heads with trying to take the boys and and raising kids at that time. They were both 18-year-olds, so they they didn't know what to do. They were overwhelmed. And I think also, too, adding to the fact that they're newlyweds, just those new experiences were, it was difficult. It was very overwhelming overall. They were not able to cope with that. So 
once my parents took custody, we figured, okay, that's going to be a little bit better. There's going to be less stress in their household. You know, they're living in an apartment and kind of a questionable area, not really the safest, but at least they don't have to worry about taking care of newborns now. They can kind of focus on them. We kept trying to encourage my sister to make the right decision and leave whenever you feel like you need to leave. If you do not feel safe, get out of there. And not even just get out of there. We always try to reassure you have a safe place to go. You have a place to go, a safe haven. And it was so heartbreaking because we felt like we were pleading with her. We knew that there's going to be a horrific outcome in this. And more so because of the fact that there became more bruising. Even after the boys had been taken to my parents' uh, custody, there were more noticeable bruises now. And it almost seemed like the fights were just escalating. She would tell us about them. She would be crying. And it almost felt like a broken record player, but we wanted to be the broken record player. We want to reassure her, remind her, you can leave. You do not have to stay there. You have a place to go. It is okay to be a broken record player right now. In a domestic violence situation with a loved one that is involved in a situation like that, you need to be someone's broken record player. You need to remind them constantly. One time is not enough. Ten times is not enough. Because when you remind them ten times, their situation at home is reminding them a thousand times, you have nowhere to go. You have no one else but me. I control you. You have no friends. You don't need friends. I'm your friend, or I pretend to be. I have the control over you. So when you're trying to present them with truth in one way, you go home, back to that domestic violence situation, there's those lies again. They're waiting for you when you step back into that place. And she felt trapped. My sister felt trapped. She felt like she could not leave, and it was so heartbreaking. And I wish I had as much as much reassurance, you know, being that broken broken record player for her, as much reassurance as I tried to give her, I, I'm always going to wonder, maybe I should have provided a little bit more empathy. Maybe I should have used a better tone of voice when I was trying to tell her, hey, you got to get out of there. You got to get away from that guy. We're going to have those regrets. With people that we've lost over the years, when we grieve, we're going to have those, I wish I would have done that moment, or I wish I would have said that more moment. Let people know you love them. Let them know you love them. You're there for them. You can be dependent on. Some people in this life, they feel like they're stuck. You may feel like you're stuck. There may be listeners right now, you are in a domestic violence situation right now. You feel like you are stuck. You cannot get out of it. I'm going to provide a resource right now. Um, And I, I remember as a crisis counselor, I actually talked with a lot of domestic violence victims. A lot of them. They would call in. And they felt like they had no place to go except for out of this world. And I remember having those conversations with them. And it was heartbreaking. But I want to provide you, if you feel like you need a way out, I want you to call this number. Okay, it's 1-800-799-7233. Okay, again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE for safe, right? So 1-800-799-7233. You can call them. If you feel like you can't get to a phone safely, They actually have a chat, okay? So I want you to go to thehotline.org, literally how it's spelled, thehotline.org, all one letter or one phrase, and you can actually chat. A lot of times you may be in the house where you don't have access to a phone, or if you do, you can't really talk and you're afraid of getting heard. This will allow you to have that safe space.
You can also text, all right? I want you to text START, S-T-A-R-T, to the number 88788, okay? They have ways of making this confidential so that if you need to get out of that abusive relationship, you have the means to do it via these resources, but you have to make that choice. Now, I know as hard as that choice is can be, it can make, it, it could feel like it's the worst choice ever. You're afraid of the consequences. And that's what Lindsay would tell us. She was afraid of the consequences of leaving that relationship. So I want you to know about, uh, about that. I, I know we're talking about grief. Okay. I'm, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, diverge away from, from the point of this episode, but this needs to be talked about. Domestic violence is on the rise. It needs to be talked about resources are available that needs to be talked about okay so uh, again you know refer back to those uh, resources i hope you use them okay so fast forward the final time i saw my sister i'll never forget that day it was three months prior to her passing and i remember i was it was a rainy day in alabama and i remember she had called me and asked me to take her to the hospital. I have never been called by her to be picked up or to be taken to the hospital. I was just glad that she was calling me. I could hear her voice. That means she's still alive. So I ran over there to her apartment, and as soon as I got to her apartment, I opened up that door. The power was off. They hadn't been paying their light bills. They just haven't had the finances. It smelled. It reeked of cat feces, you know, cat urine, it was just overwhelming. It just was a poor state of affairs with the house. And also, it looked like a tornado went through there. You could tell there was a physical struggle. It was a fight that had gone on. And when I first saw her, when she opened up the door, she didn't even want to look at me. She kept turning her face away, almost kind of reminding me of that shy little girl who would actually smile but kind of look away from me because she was so shy. No, this was a different reason. She was looking away from me for a different reason. And I finally look at her. She had her hair covering her face. I, I move her hair away and her right eye socket. I mean, it is so swollen. Her eye was bloodshot. It just looked like somebody had taken like a, a, a rubber hammer and just wailed on her right there on that eye. And you could see that she was she was in pain. She was in pain from the, the physical toll of it, but she was just numb to everything else. This was not a new occurrence for her when it came to the violence situation. But this is the first time that it was extreme enough to this point to where she needed to go to the hospital. So I remember taking her. I took her to the hospital myself. It was raining. I remember. I know I keep saying that. I'm just I'm going back to that moment. We went to the ER. And I remember just sitting there with her by the bedside. Uh, they did a couple of uh, facial x-rays, and they did see that she had her, her uh, orbit bone fractured in two different places. And it turns out he, it was just from one good punch. It wasn't even with an object. It was one punch. And she had a bunch of you know bruises and lacerations, but you know I always mention that they were on her wrist too. And what I like to remember about Lindsay is that she was a fighter. She fought back. She wasn't going to just take it. She fought back. So she always had those defensive wounds, those defensive marks on her. And she put up a fight back. She did. I was encouraged by her strength. That made me feel so much better. And so I remember, you know, we're back in the ER room, you know, in the, in the hospital, in one of the ER suites. And I remember a police officer came in 
and he asked, you know, do you want to press charges? And she would all she would always say no. Uh, this was not the first time with police interaction with her and her husband dealing with this domestic violence. She would never want to press charges. She would lie about the punch even occurring, say that she fell into a doorknob or because I, I think that's the excuse that she used that time was that she somehow slipped. It was raining outside. So I think she used that and slipped into the door knob uh, on the front of the apartment. Obviously, it was a very unbelievable story, but that was her story. She was sticking to it. And I made my last ditch effort to try to be that big brother to let her know, hey, get out of that relationship, but you have somewhere to go. And I remember that she had said, and this was a different answer I'm not used to hearing. She said, who's going to want to marry an 18-year-old with twin boys? She said that to me. That, that was her main reason for why she didn't want to leave. Who wants to marry an 18-year-old with twin boys? And... I was trying to understand that part about her. I didn't at the time. And so we just said, okay. So I go back to college, uh, you know, Blue Mountain College in North Mississippi. And I remember I was, it was a Sunday night. And it was December 16th, 2007. I was at like a, it was like a Christmas fiesta thing at church that I was at. And I got a text message from... Well, I started getting a bunch of text messages from numbers I did not re recognize at all. And they all kept asking me kind of the similar same thing. Hey, do you want to pick, do you want me to pick you up? Do you want me to, you know, do you need me to take you here? Do you mean to take me there? And I'm like, who are these people? Like, who's texting me? And I finally got a call from my dad. And I remember hearing in his voice, he, he said in, in this way, he said, you're, Lindsay is gone. And I was, I asked, well, what do you mean she's gone? Did she go somewhere? Did she finally leave? He said, no, she's, she's dead. And I remember I, I, so I got on my phone in the, um, in the church, uh, you know, there's like a sitting area right before you go to the auditorium and that's where I was at. And I, <laughs> I remember at that time there was, um, it was like an usher out there. And I remember I started to cry a little bit and the usher came up to me and he shushed me and I yelled at him. I, it was like a snap thing. I yelled at him. I said, my sister is dead. And then you could see his whole demeanor change and he felt guilty. You could tell he felt so bad, but yeah, I, Always figure out why someone is crying. Don't automatically just go up and shush them. I, I was shocked that I got shushed. Anyway, but I couldn't believe it. I, I was I was shocked. I was shocked, but I also wasn't surprised, if that makes sense. I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. The last time I saw my sister, she was half dead. Now she's fully dead. And I wanted to know why. What was happening? And it turns out that uh, she was in a one-car motor vehicle accident. Uh, she was with her husband at the time, and it turns out that they had an argument, and it became physical during the argument, and they lost control of the car. The car flipped over. It was it was like a as a white, uh, is a white uh, four tourist station wagon. Uh, you don't see that make and model around anymore, but uh, it had overturned. It flipped. It ejected her through the windshield, and it, it killed her on impact. Um, 
And I remember thinking, did he have a hand in this? What really happened? And, you know, it turns out that, you know, yeah, it was an argument that had gotten out of control and she lost control of the wheel. She was driving, as we found out, and the accident happened. And immediately, the first thing I felt was blame. I am blaming myself. I took it so personal. I took it upon myself. I am blaming myself for what just happened, for my lack of ability. I felt like I I lost the ability to save my sister. That's how I took this. She died in a car accident, but I took it as I was the one that caused her to be in the situation, to be in that accident. That's how, that's how I was thinking. That's how I was trying to rationalize it, even though it's completely irrational. But that's how I took it. I took it so personal. And so I was talking about grief, you know, earlier in this, in this thing, and I started grieving. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was grieving. I was experiencing that loss. My experience started right then and there once I got off the phone with my father. Jay Nanny, one of my friends growing up, uh, I'm glad you're listening to this episode. Uh, he would not let me drive the three hours it took from Blue Mountain, Mississippi to Huntsville, Alabama. He would not do it. Uh, so he personally drove my car. He drove me back home. And that was such a huge, huge encouragement. That's a true friend. He dropped everything he was doing and he took me home. He took my car home, and uh, they were going to figure out a way to come back home. He didn't care. The, the logistics did not matter for him trying to find a, a ride back home. That's what I was worried about. He said, no, you don't worry about that. I'm going to take you home. You're, no in, you're in no state to drive. I'm going to take you home. So a little note. If you find out that you lost somebody, a, lot, a loss of a loved one, and you know for sure you can't even take yourself or you can't drive, please let somebody else drive for you. All right. My parents did not need to lose me in an accident as well. That also happens to involve a car accident. So just know, you know, let, let people take care of you. Let them, let them take care of you. When you're grieving, let people take care of you. So we've all heard about the stages of grief, uh, which was made famous by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, the five stages of grief, wrote it in her book on, on death and dying. That's the name of the book. And it was published in 1969. So it's a very common thing. We talk about the stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And what I found interesting is that she talked about this in her book, and she actually talked with 200 people that were, uh, she interviewed with these people who had terminal illnesses. These are the people that she talked to that, that she came up with the stages of grief. So I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, reading about that. And, you know, going through each one of those, you know, briefly, you know, denial, not wanting to accept that a loss has happened. You do not want to accept it. You're in complete denial. It's pretty self-explanatory in the name. I mean, you deny it. I deny it. I deny it. I deny it. You say it over and over and over again. I immediately, my first reaction was, Lindsay is not dead. I'm not surprised just because of the given situation, but this cannot be real. This cannot be a real situation. I don't accept it. And I was adamant about it. But I had all the proof, and the proof was my father calling me and telling me, hey, she's gone. She's dead. I denied it. Anger. That's the second one, right? And anger, this can be directed at anybody and anything. It could be to your higher power, your deity, whoever that may be. It could be 
to the people that you love the most, who love you the most. Uh, and you know what? It could even be directed toward yourself. Believe it or not. I had that. I directed all that anger towards me. Again, I was blaming myself. I failed as a big brother. That's how I took it. I directed it, my anger at myself, at my deity, whoever I knew I could direct that anger towards, I was going to do it. Uh, so, and there's also bargaining, right? Um, and bargaining is the agreement. It's more of a cover up so that you don't have to deal with that loss. I personally did not really you stay in the stage very long in the bargaining stage. I kind of went from that denial to anger to depression. I was in that depression state for the longest time. And depression, as we know, it's just a bunch of different, you know, simple and complex emotions everywhere, uh, including detachment. That's a big thing is emotional detachment. I wanted to, I was hurting so bad that I wanted to remove myself, detach from my own body, almost like abandoning ship. The ship has so many holes in it. You need to jump ship because this thing is sinking quick. I was sinking. I was being flooded. I didn't know what to do with all this depression. I still had my denial and I still had my anger. Little side note, all these things can kind of happen simultaneously. It's not one after the other. It's not a set sequence. I experienced about four of these ongoing at the same time. And then finally, acceptance. Uh, acceptance. Uh, acceptance. It took me a long time to accept the fact that she was gone. And when I came to the realization that, hey, she's not in that relationship anymore with that monster. Oh, acceptance became so much more beautiful. When I knew, when I thought about that fact that she wasn't in that storm of a relationship anymore. It's a matter of time when you get to that point of acceptance. It doesn't mean happiness. Acceptance does not mean happiness. You are literally embracing the reality that, that the pain is still there, but you accept the reality of the situation that has happened. I accept it. So there are many types of grief, okay? This grief is not the same as that grief, is the same as that grief. There, there are very many different ones. You have anticipatory grief, you have abbreviated grief, you have delayed grief, inhibited grief, cumulative grief, collective grief, good grief. There's a lot of grief when talking about the different types of grief. And the grief that I, want, the grief that I wanted to talk about um, that I experienced the most was the inhibited grief. Okay, the inhibited grief, um, that involves repressing those emotions. Okay, uh, if you haven't been taught how to really process these emotions, which a lot of times we haven't been taught how to handle emotions of this kind, it's more of, you know, on the job training. All right. When somebody, when you lose a job, you lose a spouse, you lose a loved one, you lose a newborn, whoever it may be. Um, now you're learning. Now it's a process. You're, it's the experience begins right then and there and you're learning on the job. There's other types of griefs too, uh, such as collective grief, right? So that's more of like a group setting. Uh, I know I mentioned, I talk about the, the widespread areas of tornadoes that occurred, uh, in April 2011, you know, from my first episode where I talked about, you know, making that career change and that event changed my life. So there was a collective grief. So all groups, you know, whether it be natural disasters, school shootings, my goodness, there are so many school shootings. As a combined group, we grieve these shared experiences. 
we all have lost together in, in that sense of a collective grieving process. We struggle to imagine a changed future. Life will never be the same. That's the collective grief that I'm talking about. But there's so many different types of grief. Again, I just want to talk about those two, especially ones that I've experienced. There was a collective grieving process when my sister passed away. So many people were hurting for us. So many hearts were broken. We thought it was just us, right? It effectively directed us. But when you see the outpouring of love and people trying to encourage you and to just, you know, give their condolences, that really changes the narrative on thinking, okay, this is personal grief. No, this is now a collective grief situation. Allow that collective grief to be recognized because people do care for you. People do love you. They will come out from what they're doing from their lives to be injected into your life and recognize that, hey, this person is hurting right now. I love this person. I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to encourage them and say the right things or at least attempt to say the right things. You know, we want to say the right things. And many times we have no clue what to say to that person who just experienced this tragedy, this loss. We have no clue what to say at the time. So how long does grief actually last? Obviously that answer varies. It can last any amount of time. The American Psychological Association actually defines grief as lasting from six months to two years. So that's the official timeline, but obviously grief can last, you know, more or less than that. But that's kind of the uh, generalized uh, agreement uh, within that uh, association. So I'm a medical doctor. We have to talk about the physical symptoms of grief, right? Grief doesn't just affect your emotional and mental state. It affects your physical state as well. It can overwhelm your nervous system, your ability to think and process and move. That's how your nervous system is affected. Additionally, your immune system, right? You may pick up colds easier. You know, these viral colds, you may get sick easier, longer. Um, your immune system takes a beating when you're under a lot of stress from grief, all right? So what are some of these symptoms? Uh, aside from that, you know, nervous system affecting and your immune system being affected, you know, fatigue, headaches, nausea, restlessness, upset stomach, heart palpitations, uh, weak muscles, joint pain. You could have some you know, uh, tightness in your chest or your throat, that feeling of impending doom kind of on your chest. Uh, I am going to say this though. Um, you know, if you do feel any of these symptoms, I never want you to assume, Oh, it's just a griefing process or maybe I'm down about something. It could be other medically related stuff, anything cardiac in nature or anything like that. Please, please, please. Any symptoms that you ever experience, talk to your PCP your primary care physician, or uh, for kids, you know, your pediatrician, let them know what's going on. Let them do the appropriate test. This will allow them to get the proper diagnosis. Always, always, always talk with your primary care physician about that, okay? So how do we take care of ourselves in this grief process? What do we do? What do we need to do? So I have a few little things here that I want to talk about as far as like what you can do. Uh, one thing, attend to your emotions, you know, take care of yourself. Uh, that means resisting that urge, right, to distract yourself from difficult emotions uh, by getting lost in your work. You know, distractions are very temporary. It doesn't reach out to the root of the problem of your grief. Uh, you need to not be ashamed of it. Uh, don't be ashamed to cry. Uh, you need to allow yourself to process these wave of emotions. You need to attend to them. Um, a big thing as a crisis counselor that I used to use with uh, my clients whenever they called into the hotline I would always talk about journaling or if they did yoga, going on walks, you know, taking care of yourself, but also at the same time, uh, recognizing, you know, 
when you go on those walks, maybe talk to somebody about it, talk out loud to yourself about what you're experiencing. Uh, journaling, journaling is a big thing. Write down your thoughts. Sometimes you're, you have a better collection of your thoughts in a journal when you write down stuff. That's been a good one that I've used uh, with clients in the past. Uh, but yeah, tend to those emotions, okay? Uh, have a routine, okay? That's, a, that's the next thing, right? You need to have a routine. Uh, make sure you're, you know, shaving every day. Make sure you're taking a shower, taking care of yourself. Uh, make sure to go to bed at a good time, wake up at a good time. Obviously, grief has a great way of making us night owls. It will keep us up at night. Um, but also, you know, you need to take care of your sleep hygiene, right? Take care of your physical hygiene, your sleep hygiene, make sure you're going to bed at good hours and try to eat meals. Uh, you know, you need to eat. Okay. Your body needs food. You need to eat. Okay. So, uh, please try to do that. Reach out to others. Um, you know, and when I say others, I mean, ones, people that, you know, uh, trust you. Okay. Uh, a big experience for mine. I had so many people reach out to me on the day of their funeral they were so sorry. They felt bad for me. You know, if there's anything I can do for you, I'll do it for you. And then three weeks later, those same people who had given me their condolences, right? It, you, it starts to be filtered out. You start to see the true people who were there for you emotionally. They want to be available uh, for in your time of grief. They want to be there for you. Those are the real ones. Okay. Those are the true friends um, who want to be there for you. So if you know of somebody who, you know, lost a loved one, maybe five, six months ago, maybe a year ago, check in on them, call them up, say, Hey, how are you doing with everything? You know, how, how are you doing? How are you processing everything? Has everything been going well? You know, like little statements like that, that means a lot, especially a year, you know, months and even years after the actual, uh, event of loss. Okay. Uh, and more than anything, I, I cannot express this enough. Speak to a, th a therapist or a grief counselor. Okay. Um, like I said, you know, I used to work as a crisis counselor. Um, and, and I, I remember having people reach out to me. I would always redirect them for that continuity of care to keep talking with somebody, you know, with an actual, you know, therapist in person. You know, I was, I was considered, you know, I was a crisis counselor hotline, so they only spoke with me with that one interaction, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, however long it took. And then I would redirect them to those resources, you know, uh, within their community if they wanted to do kind of like an online thing. Whatever needs that they had, I would help set them up uh, for them to be successful. But you need to talk about it. It's kind of like attending to your emotions uh, that we talked about, you know, that first little bullet point, but speak to a therapist, speak to a grief counselor. You need to do that. Um, talk to your PCP again, your primary care physician, your pediatrician, they need to hear about this. They're not just your physical health doctor and only deal with like your strep throat, your ear infections. You know, they, they want to hear more about what's going on emotionally as well. And they'll be able to help provide you that support, and, and guide you towards the right resources, okay? All right, so finally, what can we do uh, to support someone who is grieving? Okay, so we talked about ourselves. We talked about what can we do when we're in our state of grief, but what can we do for somebody else? Be present, <laughs> okay? Just be there. Sometimes the best things said is nothing at all. Your presence could be life-saving. I'm going to say that again. Your presence can be life-saving, for someone who feels like their world is crashing around them and they feel like nobody is there for them, but they're not going to tell you, they're not going to say anything, but you see it in their body language. You see it 
in their face. You see it in their tears. You see it on their face when they run out of tears. They can't cry anymore. They're just numb. Be present for them. They want to start talking to you about what's going on with their loss or, you know, just be present. Be open. Uh, Offer to help, all right? Not a lot of people are going to be comfortable with asking for help. So always be that person to offer help. You know, like I said before, uh, check in on somebody, you know, after a couple of months, a year or two. Hey, how are you processing everything? You know, be that offer to help, okay? Um, Make yourself available, right? Like be present. Oh, more than anything, I think this is probably the bigger takeaway. Do not minimize someone's loss. Do not try to one-up their loss. Don't say, well, it happens to all of us. Do not do that. That is minimizing. That will make the situation worse, okay? Um, don't try, because I think naturally we try to think, oh, we're going to make the situation better by minimizing it, when in actuality we are adding tragedy to more of their tragedy, right? Do not be the reason that they are in tragedy. Do not be part of that reason, okay? Just (laughs) allow them to process their feelings. Let them talk to you. Just be there for them. But don't minimize their loss. Don't one-up them. So in closing, I, um, I do miss my sister a lot. I know you didn't ask, but I'm telling you, I do miss her a lot. I hope that she would be proud of me. And there's so many things I would want to say to her. There's so many apologies I would want to make to her. But I hope that I'm making her proud now and living out my life. And for those of you that have lost uh, loved ones close to you or experienced any kind of loss in any capacity, you're trying your best. I try to tell myself that every day. You're trying your best. You're doing all that you can. And your loved ones would be proud of you. And if you do feel like you're getting to that point where it's beyond just the grieving process now, it's a question of, well, why should I even be here? I mean, what, what is there to live? Um, you know, what's the point of it? What, what are the reasons I should keep living? Maybe I should consider ending it all. If, if it ever gets to that point for you, okay, I, I want you to bust out that phone, call 988, okay? That's the National Suicide Hotline Prevention Line. And I'm going to encourage you to call that line if you ever get to that point, okay? Whether it be 911 for emergency medical services, 988, it is totally anonymous. They want to talk with you, help you. As somebody who was a crisis counselor themselves, I was so happy to get that call because that meant they are still with me. They are still alive. Let's talk this out, okay? So 988, if that is you who feels like uh, you've got to that point of no return, you feel like there's no point in it all, living, please call this number. That help is there, okay? Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe and check out all the Phil's podcasts on Instagram. I want to thank my producer and marketing director, Caleb McLean, for his hard work and diligence. Remember to give yourself some grace and remember to join me next week as we get into the fields in all the fills. So long.